You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are thrilled in this new year, 2023, to start a series on China, what's happening internally and externally. It's an extraordinary period. We're going to be doing a series in the coming weeks, and we're really thrilled to be able to start today with a close friend and a terrific internationally known expert, Dr. Yansan Wang. Yansan, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks, Steve, for having me. Thank you, Andrew, too. Good to see you. So Dr. Wang is at Seton Hall University School of Diplomacy and International Relations. He directs the School's Center for Global Health Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a senior fellow for global health. His output is really prodigious. He's the founding editor of Global Health Governance, the scholarly journal for the new health security paradigm. And for our own parochial interest, over the past two years, Yanzong has kindly served as co-chair of a working group uh, on China-U.S. relations with Scott Kennedy from here at CSIS as part of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. That has been very, very fruitful. So thank you for joining us, Yanzong. Let's start with a sort of mega question. We're now over one month past the dramatic moment, early December, where President Xi threw off the zero COVID requirements for testing quarantine lockdowns. And what's followed has been a chaotic and confusing period, dangerous and frightening, featuring a gargantuan rolling COVID outbreak sweeping the country. Tell us, as you look back over this past period, what are your top line observations from this extraordinary month in COVID history? Well, yeah, this is truly unprecedented. I mean, when I say unprecedented, there's no overstatement, you know, because we haven't seen uh, the virus, you know, spread so fast, right? Um, such a large scale, right? The People's Daily yesterday, they published a long-form piece calling China's pandemic response a miracle. But I would say, well, this is thing is more, you know, unprecedented, you know, when we talk about, you know, the rapid spread of the virus uh, after the reopening, right, in December, on December 7th, you know, they are, of course, as you have just to say, that process is chaotic, is messy, but then I, I found it really puzzling because, you know, that they, normally you would, uh, you know, want to flatten the curve, right, to avoid the healthcare system being overwhelmed by the unbridled spread of the virus. But they, I, I sensed, you know, this tendency or inclination or pattern, whatever you call it, of, you know, trying to, you know, basically peak as soon as you can, or in fact, as many people as you can. I think January 6th, you know, we are seeing in many places by the uh, you know, majority of the population has already been infected, you know, with the, uh, the virus. I think nationwide, you know, we talk about very likely 700 million people now, more than 50% population likely have been infected uh, and are recovering. And in some major cities like Beijing, you know, more than 80% of the population being infected. I just saw the news that in the central Hunan province, which uh, 
is home of nearly like 100 million uh, people. Uh, now they have nearly 90% of the population. That is official estimate. 90% of the population being infected. We talk about essentially, you know, this 88 million people. That's more than, right, the, the German population have been infected just within a, a month. Uh, so this is truly, right, incredible. Uh, but, but in the meantime, you know, that uh, in those cities, even though they, uh, the viral wave has peaked, but uh, severe cases, you know, continue to increase, you know, so uh, the healthcare system continue to face huge pressures. Now, there seems to be a, 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 prog- a consensus emerging that we're going to see two peaks in this period. There's a second peak coming in which in February and March, we'll see a surge into the rural areas. And the modelers that have looked at what is the mortality likely to be, they're sort of circling around one to two million deaths in this period. Say a bit about those things, that moving into the rural areas where you have a very heavy concentration of elderly and very, very weak health infrastructure and preparedness. And also, what, does, what would it mean to lose one to two million? Well, <laughs> okay. Well, we start with the countryside. Right now, it's, um, to my knowledge, in many of the uh, rural areas already, right, that they have a lot of people being infected. In my hometown, you know, I, heard, I know that, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, it's a lot of my, the friends, you know, family members that are being infected, you know, that... Uh, Although, you know, we haven't seen maybe a rapid increase of the um, elderly people right, developing to severe symptoms or dying with COVID, but that might also be a result of, you know, the lack of, you know, testing, right? Because you know, with the uh, dismantling of the massive PCR testing regime, right, and the lack of access to antigen rapid test kits, so many of the people would get infected with in countryside without knowing right that their uh, COVID status you know and uh, and some of them while you know well-to-do family households they might you know go to the urban hospitals you know and to get seek treatment therefore they will you know find out whether they you know have COVID or not many people especially the elderly who are over for example 80 you know they just feel well this is a natural process you know they so they just uh, might get infected some of them just die at home but there's a saying in the countryside called the happy morning uh, means but if you die and you know, over 80 or 90 you know that's a happy thing I think the worst is yet to come, you know, now that uh, you know, migrant workers are starting to return to their homeland, you know, many have been infected, you know, without even knowing their status. You know, that explains why we're seeing like one third of those travelers, right, uh, when they arrive, right, in U.S., right, in Italy, you know, all the countries, they've been tested with COVID, but the, they probably were not aware of their COVID status. You know, they might be recovering, but they, you know, they didn't know that they could still share the virus if, uh, you know, they have uh, uh, not turned uh, up negative. So uh, considering also what uh, the fragile healthcare system in the countryside, considering, right, the, that the in the countryside, majority of the population tend to be elderly 
and children, right? So you know this is going to be,、uh, I think, a huge challenge, right? That China have to deal cope with in the coming uh, uh, weeks. One thing, just to emphasize for our for our listeners, I mean, the Lunar New Year brings about the largest mig- internal migration in scale in terms of millions of people moving of any migration, annual seasonal migration anywhere in the world. So you're going to see massive spread in the coming weeks. Exactly, we talk about、uh, this so-called Lunar New Year travel rush. We you know, more than two hundred million people will be moving across the country. That means the virus is also going to travel across the country, right? So you know that is going to we're going to see why、right? this is how this is going to facilitate the spread of the virus right to the entire country, right,、uh, from the、uh, cities to the countryside. So what does this mean, though, for the United States and other countries? You know, we're watching this happen in China. Many of us in America are unaware of this unprecedented scale. What does it mean for us? I think we certainly we have reason to be concerned, right, about explosive growth of cases in the country, right.、Uh, but I think the way we we impose the travel restrictions by、right, on passengers from China. I think this is driven more by the concern of the potential emergence of new variants. I think so far, there's first of all, there's no evidence of the emergence of new variants, and secondly, right, considering this large, right, huge, right, immunologically naive population, the virus basically does not really need to evolve, right, in order to infect. Right, so they like. I sort of, sort of, I agree with you know Dr. Murray, Chris Murray, that the likelihood of the emergence of the new dangerous variant seems to be not very high. Right, so that is why I also think you know that these travel restrictions may not be. Necessary, you know that、uh, given that we already right, the lear- we have already learned to coexist with the virus, and the virus carried by the passengers from China, right, essentially are the same ones we have been dealing with over the past years. To answer Andrew's question, I mean, some of it gets back to it. We really do have a very serious national interest in getting access to to ample sequencing data. Genomic sequencing data on the samples that of the, these cases emerging, so that we and the rest of the world have some visibility into what variants are driving this outbreak. So we can be prepared. Yeah, and we also need to know the the clinical pattern. We need to know about hospitalization, ICU bed use, extreme illness, death, by geography and by different time periods. And we don't have that, and nor does anyone else outside of China. And so, here we have this massive outbreak, and again we find that we're a bit blind to what's happening. So that's a consideration. I think also the reaction, you know, the the hardening of travel restrictions that we've seen. I mean, Korea has been super tough on the Chinese. The hardening of these restrictions. There is a heavy political component to that. There's a little bit of payback. In this, I think politically against the Chinese, who were themselves extremely tough and exclusionary. So there's a little bit of the Chinese getting a little bit of their own medicine. There's a little bit of Schadenfreude underneath all of this as well. 
which I think is unfortunate. I think the uh, humanitarian element is getting lost in terms of what this means for mass suffering by people who are vulnerable, who are among the most marginalized or most vulnerable populations, and who deserve to be protected. And what is it that the U.S. and others can do in that regard? And it's not always clear what we can do. We have offered tens of millions of mRNA vaccines and not received any positive response to that requirement. We have stockpiles. We have serious stockpiles of mRNA that are on offer. We've also offered technical support on genome sequencing, accelerating that. We've offered uh, to other best practices and technical support. If the Secretary Blinken visits in Beijing, as expected in the next month, some of these issues should be front and center, I would hope. Yeah, well, this is always this is the part I'm so puzzled, right? You might have heard about this negotiation with Pfizer, right, over the transfer of uh, uh, the Paxlovid, right, uh, technology and medicine, you know, has failed, right? They be, in which the uh, the Chinese side say, well, this the ask price is just way too high, you know. But I think this is avoidable, right? That you could have, right, the uh, imported, uh, right, the MI vaccines. And you know, the, the spend the money right uh, on that. It can you save hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Uh, um, treating right the, those severe cases, right? So this, you know, I, I you know, I, the part I don't quite get it. And in the meantime, I do agree with you that uh, it's um, the you know, there's reason why for international community to be concerned about this lack of transparency, you know, lack of sharing of genomic sequence. But typically, I think you should have like share, you should, should share like 0.5% of the genomic uh, sequence of the, the cases, right, uh, in the country. But uh, so far, you know, this, you know, this is like a even tiny, tiny fraction, right, of this, the, uh, those cases, right, there's their genomic sequence of being shared with international community. In the meantime, I'm also concerned about this impact, right, of these international travel restrictions. You know, what kind of signal this is going to send, right, to the future by the countries, by right, who wants to share, right, these samples of genomic sequences that, you know, indicate that the emergence of new variants, because it's like what the South Africa did, right, in December, right, 2000. 21, I believe. When you start to share, right, then well, you become victimized by your willingness, by the transparency, right? When other countries, you know, started to impose all these travel bans. And that is not good for international relations either, right? We talk about in China, you know, that uh, have been Many people for three years, they haven't had a chance to travel overseas, but the, and so for us too, right? Haven't had a chance to visit the country for three years. So that lack of personnel exchange exactly was the reason behind all this misperceptions, misunderstandings, conspiracy theories, right? So, you know, I think now that they're willing to reopen their borders, I think we should sort of encourage that trend, you know, not to discourage, right? In 
then give you the you know the uh, the ammunition for the nationalists, uh, <laughs> nationalists in the country, right? Uh, to criticize by the U.S. by the foreign policy. Don't you think the reopening is going to cut a couple directions? And what what I mean by that is, in 2019, you had 155 million Chinese travel as tourists outside of China, and they spent a quarter of a trillion dollars. Much of that was concentrated in in Vietnam, in Thailand, and in Japan, when you look at the numbers. Now, the Japanese are being pretty tough on the controls. Thailand and Vietnam are desperate to see those tourists come back, and they're not putting tough controls in place. And the Chinese uh, who can travel are very eager to travel, and they're eager to, you know, we're talking about infusing 200 to $250 million into the global tourist economy. That's not insignificant. Billion dollars. Billion. Yeah, $250 billion. billion. Dollars. Yeah, billion not billion. Dollars. Yeah. And they, they're running up against these restrictions on travel, which are to maybe a dozen countries at the moment. I don't know what the exact count is. It was a nine or 10 at the end of last week. But they're major countries, principally Western countries, along with Japan. But there's, there's not the commercial aircraft in place yet to move those people. And there's not the visa processing systems in place to move those people. So it's going to be a slow reopening. Do you agree with that? When we talk about reopening, right, the Chinese borders, it's not just about, right, the, the lifting of the quarantine, right, the restrictions, but it's also the visa process. You know, so far, you know, there's the 10-year, the right, there's the uh, visa, right, that applies to the uh, citizens on both sides, right, U.S. and China, that uh, have not been reactivated uh, in a way. Maybe the U.S. is actually now allowing that, but in China, well, if you are like a U.S city then want to travel to China, you have to, right? That still needs to apply for visa. And uh, there's also the, the, um, the nonstop direct flights, right? The United, for example, you know, have not the renewed their you know, nonstop flights to uh, mainland China. Yeah, I, I wanted to go back to in China. You know, we've seen protests. We've seen a reignition of the protests after the reopening that, that really has been significant in China. What do you make of the situation? You know, has the government simply intensified its repression of protests versus other measures to engage an irate public? Well, we know, right, that this social protest, right, in late November, right, 2022, well, this is just show, uh, indicate, right, that, uh, you know, the social discontent over zero COVID, right, that reached uh, like a breaking point. Right, so uh, basically, people you know was using that to send a signal. Right, enough is enough. Right, and uh, while well, even before that, there were already signs. Right, that the uh, the, the virus is no longer containable. Right? Zero COVID is no longer sustainable. The economy is in big trouble. Right, but uh, I think uh, the uh, the social protest right uh, was the direct trigger of the government policy uh, shift. You know, but uh, we still don't know what what exactly happened right in that uh, essentially one week right between November thirtieth and December seventh. We haven't seen a reignition of protests in this last month. 
there's a reignition of protest, but not that type of political protest, to my knowledge, right? That, that you know, directed the demands, you know, toward the central government or central leadership, right? Well, in part is because this is, I think, is a very smart strategy, right? They have uh, now the students are not all right uh, taking the classes online. They are all back to to their home. <laughs> You know, so there's a collective action problem, you know, they have to overcome now. Some of the motivation in this reopening, this radical 180 degree turn was a calculation that this was essential to get the economy back up and running. And maybe they have to go through a tough period here for a few months. But at the other end of the day, the population will have acquired some immune protection and it'll be easier to reopen. In the meantime, though, the economy's taken even worse hits, hasn't it, in the midst of this upheaval? Well, yeah, now certainly that absenteeism now is, you know, having a huge impact you know, on the economy. One of my friends, you know, the company, he told me that 80% of his employees actually were infected. But it was precisely, right, the, the, the why the, the government wants to, right, the, the um, in fact, as many, well, <laughs> not necessarily government, there was such a strategy seems to be, right, uh, that in, by infecting as many people as possible, so by, right, the end of January 31st, you know, or early February, most of the population will acquire some kind of immunity. And so that absenteeism will no longer be a concern, right, when the Lunar New Year is over, right? So that, uh, you know, what leads to what they hope, right, the rapid economic recovery. And if you look at the, the history, right, the, the typically, right, a major pandemic or, or disease outbreak once it's over that the, in the immediate aftermath that we're going to see by rapid uh, you know economic uh, uh, growth you know that and then and certainly uh then now this is a top priority in china but we're likely not to see that bounce back until perhaps the third quarter or something like that in other words the maybe sometime over the summer or into the fall in other words this outbreak is going to extend into late spring, I would guess, right? Well, I, my projection uh, is that very likely by March or April, you have most of the population you know, basically infected and then learn to coexist with the virus. So they will be sort of like us, you know, no longer, you know, that uh, think this is the, uh, uh, you know, COVID is now a, is a big deal. So life will be back to normal, right? The economy re you know, recovery is going to uh, be achieved, you know, and uh, so, you know, uh, but, but sort of the uncertainties, right? The, the, uh, because now we might have heard that the XBB 1.5, right? Which is probably the most transmissible subvariant, right? That's Far, you know, that uh, if as one epidemiologist predicted, you know, 80% of the American population would be reinfected, right, with that uh, subvariant, then you would expect probably that is also going to happen in China, you know. So, you know, there's, there's no guarantee, right, that the way the, you know, the every, you know, most of the people in the country is infected by spring, everything, right, uh, you know, things will be more completely be back to normal. 
Yes. I just want to come back to one point on the elderly. I mean, the I think you could look at this situation and make a case that the elderly and those that are with compromised systems that are in, you know, a rural settings are going to take the heaviest hit. I mean, in the United States, we've lost over 1.2 million. I think at least one third are elderly in that category. I would, I would expect that it's going to be even higher in the Chinese yeah. case. This is going to be a big blow to, to that segment of the population, and that's going to have social and cultural impacts. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, the, uh, the, according to Alfinity, right, by April, right, the expected 1.7 million people are going to die, right, uh, with COVID in China or of COVID, right, in China. Of course, but that is not going to be reflected in the official statistics, right, the, uh, because they you know, A, have very strict, uh, you know, definition of what counts Right, COVID death and B, right, doctors they're discouraged, right, discouraged from you know reporting any COVID related death, right. So you're gonna see why the the death toll will be very small, uh, in the country. Even though I think a lot of people, right, by the uh, the end of this viral wave will die, uh, with COVID. That likely will reduce China's average life expectancy by one year. But uh, when we talk about the political implications, you know, I'm not that sure what uh, that is going to mean for political, you know, regime legitimacy in China, whether that is going to cause a fundamental by legitimacy crisis. You know, all I know that uh, this is already by causing a sort of like a confidence crisis. When we talk about a confidence crisis, just people seems to lost hope for the future. And that also, right, is sort of associated with like a, a lack of trust, right, in the government policy right, uh, and potentially uh, in the regime as a whole. But, uh, you know, I'm not so sure whether this is going to be translated into a fundamental legitimacy crisis. I see. Okay. Let's close with... With a big diplomatic question. We open with a big question around, you know, what's this last month meant? Diplomatic question is, is it going to be possible in the midst of this crisis in China uh, and a reopening that's happening? We had the, the G. Biden summit at Bali, the G20, a commitment to reset, a commitment to talk differently and think differently around health matters. Secretary Blinken's expected to visit Beijing in the next month. Do you think that this time around we're going to see some a different kind of outcome from what we saw in 2020, 2021, which was a very disappointing and problematic dynamic between China and the United States, China and the rest of the world? You think things are going to be potentially different this time around? Well, you had that, that uh, this problem, right, in 2020, 2021, this, this lack of U.S.-China cooperation or even a serious dialogue, right, on health security. We allow, you know, this forbidding, right, the political environment, right, shaping, right, the response by to the pandemic, right? So, you know, we could find a solution here sort of create a, this this environment you know 
that makes the uh, public health immune from politics, right? You know, basically, right, uh, sort of like a results-oriented approach, you know, not allowing right, that, that cooperation to be contaminated by politics, right? I think uh, that is crucial if we want to have any right, uh, fruitful cooperation or collaboration or even a serious dialogue right, over uh, public health issues, you know, I think that is the critical, right? So, you know, I hope, right, that the both sides be more pragmatic, you know, they should uh, stop finger pointing and don't allow, right, this lack of trust, right, to be the uh, primary hurdle when we were talking about my right, issues like, you know, sharing of samples, right, genomic sequence, right? uh, the uh, improving right? the, the public health infrastructure of even preparing uh, for the next you know, pandemic. You know, I, I think you know, this, this kind of pragmatic attitude, I think it would be crucial if we really want a, a fruitful, constructive you know, dialogue you know, that uh, I believe is in both sides' interests. Thank you. Yan Zong, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us today and all the great work that you do in this area and your generosity towards us at CSIS. We're really grateful. We're off to a great start here on this new series. So thank you and Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you too. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment on our homepage, at csis.org slash podcasts.